For those of you who think your high level of HDL, the good cholesterol, is going to protect you from heart disease, think again. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, Medical Director of the Heart Attack Prevention Center. Joining me today is Dr. Stanley Hazen, Head of the Section for Preventive Cardiology and Rehabilitation, Director for the Center for Cardiovascular Diagnostics and Prevention, and a Staff Physician in the Departments of Cell Biology and Cardiovascular Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hazen. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Dr. Hazen, I already have a dysfunctional family. How likely is it that I've also inherited dysfunctional HDL? (laughs) That's a difficult question to answer. What we do know is that not all HDL is atheroprotective. And there have been many studies that have demonstrated now that if you isolate HDL from subjects who have cardiovascular disease, In culture, they're not as effective at removing cholesterol from cells of the artery wall and promoting what we term reverse cholesterol transport, or the major pathway for removing cholesterol from the artery wall and to the liver so that it can be removed. So what we've learned in medical school about HDL and LDL, half of it's probably wrong. I wouldn't say half, but what we do know is that initially the simple view was total cholesterol, is what we should be using for risk prediction. And then a couple of decades ago, we started separating into the good, the HDL cholesterol, and the bad LDL cholesterol. What we now know is not all HDL is not equal. And in fact, HDL is a very large population of high-density particles or lipoproteins, and they can vary in their functional capacity. And it turns out that subjects who have cardiovascular disease tend to have higher levels of HDL that is not atheroprotective. And in fact, several years ago, we first published that if you isolate ApoA1 or HDL from atherosclerotic plaque, up to one out of every two HDL particles recovered from lesion material, from human aortic tissue, was atherogenic and failed to promote reverse cholesterol transport. It's a pretty high number. It is. So it looks like HDL diffuses into the artery wall, and if there's a pro-inflammatory, pro-atherosclerotic environment, that the apolipoprotein A1, the major protein of HDL, is selectively targeted for modification and that renders it dysfunctional or incapable of promoting reverse cholesterol transport. What was it that made you kind of even get interested in looking at HDL and seeing if it was working at all? Well, we didn't start as an HDL lab. We actually began as uh, as a lab that was interested in asking what are the pathways in of oxidation and inflammation that are ongoing in the artery wall and are linked to the development of atherosclerosis. And during the course of those studies, we first identified an enzyme called myeloperoxidase, or something also abbreviated MPO, as a pathway that is enriched and turned on during atherosclerosis and linked to the development of atherosclerosis. And in fact, there's now even an FDA-cleared test available in clinical use for risk screening patients for cardiovascular disease called myeloperoxidase or cardio-MPO. It turns out as we started to drill deeper and ask how does MPO link to causing atherosclerosis, we found that MPO will actually promote oxidation in the artery wall and it selectively targets ApoA1 because it binds to the HDL particle. And so when looking at what are the proteins in the artery wall that are oxidized by MPO and also nitric oxide-derived oxidants, ApoA1 showed up as this selective target that was between 100 and 500-fold selectively targeted for oxidation. 
so then then we really essentially became an HDL research lab because we needed to try to understand how oxidative modification of the A1 altered the function of the HDL particle. Let's move on with the concept and let's talk a little bit about what happened with torcetrapib. It raised HDL dramatically, but as you know, didn't pan out to work. So it was not creating good functional HDL. Well, I don't know if we, if we can say that torcetrapib does not generate functional HDL. What we definitely can say is that giving cholesterol ester transfer protein inhibitor in the form of torcetrapib is not associated with cardioprotection, but rather increased cardiovascular risk. I think it would be a little premature to throw out the whole field of cholesterol ester transfer protein inhibitors because we know that also torcetrapib has characteristics that are clearly off-line for being involved in CTEP inhibition. There are many other high-potency CTEP inhibitors that do not cause, for example, hypertension, yet significant elevations in systolic high blood pressure were seen in a substantial portion of the patients taking torcetrapib, sometimes over 10 millimeters mercury elevation. So it's unclear whether or not the failure of torcetrapib is a failure due to just a bad drug or the fact that the whole concept of raising HDL cholesterol levels with a cholesterol ester transfer protein inhibitor is flawed. Are you guys working with another CETP inhibitor in Cleveland? We are starting to do studies with CTEP itself now, but we don't have access to looking at blood samples of patients on and off of torcetrapib and and looking at the functional capacity of those HDL particles. The other thing to realize is HDL in the lab that we use in clinical practice is not a measure of the particle number or the flux of cholesterol. It's simply a measure of total cholesterol in HDL or high-density lipoprotein particles. And you can model and show many scenarios where HDL goes up, yet the flux of cholesterol does not increase. And so while we don't have it available, what we really need is a measure of cholesterol flux out of the artery wall, out of the periphery, to the liver. And the steady state level is not necessarily the same as the rate of efflux of cholesterol. Now, one of the things that our recent study looking at dysfunctional HDL and identifying the chemical mechanism of how HDL is rendered dysfunctional and the precise site on the APOA1 that's modified, we now have a chemical fingerprint for defining and identifying and measuring dysfunctional HDL. So what we're hoping to do is to develop a clinically usable assay to quantify dysfunctional HDL or dysfunctional APOA1 because what we're really measuring is a site-specific oxidized form of APOA1. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. I'm talking today with Dr. Stanley Hazen, head of the section for preventive cardiology and rehabilitation and director of the Center for Cardiovascular Diagnostics and Prevention, the Cleveland Clinic Foundation. We're talking about dysfunctional HDL. Dr. Hazen, you talked about this chemical fingerprint for myeloperoxidase-damaged HDL. Let's say we identify that in a patient, and then what? What do we do with that information? Do we say, okay, we have to raise your HDL, but I don't know that that's going to make a difference because it's not working. What do, what do I do with that information? It's an excellent question. The same can be said for many biomarkers of risk. Okay, so you identify someone that's at risk. What do you do? Initially, I think the common sense thing to do is to say, even though, let's say, 
guidelines would argue this is your goal. Instead, if you know additional markers indicate that you're at high risk, such as your dysfunctional HDL level is high, you should then move into a higher risk category and be more aggressive with known risk-reducing preventive therapies, whether that be diet, exercise, a more aggressive use of statins, lower LDL goals, and maybe more likely to pull the trigger on trying to raise HDL with niacin. It does appear that perhaps there's evidence that adding niacin on top of statins, we think that that results in increased cardioprotection, although, of course, a definitive placebo-controlled randomized trial on that is ongoing. Um, but certainly studies like quantitative coronary angiography and intravascular ultrasound and others and carotid intermolecular thickening, surrogates of aposcrotic plaque progression all point that raising HDL concomitantly with lowering LDL is beneficial. So I think if you see a high dysfunctional HDL level at this point, the argument would be just be more aggressive with global proven risk-reducing therapies or interventions Now, down the road, the idea would be, I think, to block formation of the dysfunctional HDL. For example, make an inhibitor of myeloperoxidase. And indeed, there are multiple pharmaceutical companies now that are in the midst of trying to develop inhibitors for myeloperoxidase. You mentioned IMT, and uh, in my center, I'm a big fan of using IMT to assess the actual risk of the patient. We've all been brainwashed to just look at numbers and and treat everybody's numbers, but I kind of like to look at the individual patient and see if they actually have disease. And then if they have disease, then then I'm more concerned treating their LDL and their HDL. But let's say you have someone that has no evidence whatsoever of atherosclerosis, be it by carotid IMT, be it by CT angiography, or even angiography, Do we still have to throw these people on drugs when they have no evidence of any disease whatsoever? The answer to that would be no. I think that what you would just make the argument is at that point in time, based on the knowledge that we would have, that they would be at an increased predisposition for developing disease over the long term. So it's just someone who shouldn't disappear from view from their primary care physician and maybe come back you know, on an annual basis and make sure their cholesterol levels being screened, their blood pressure is being screened. If you keep telling them to quit smoking, you try and really drive it home. Because cardiovascular disease develops over decades. And just because at a given point in time, someone you know has negative imaging study, I don't think that we can take that to the bank and say, okay, this means that for the next five or 10 years, you don't have to worry and you can go off and supersize and have the double junior whopper for a dollar. Right. It's a, it's a snapshot. It's a moment in time. But it is also looking at an individual instead of looking at mass quantities of people that all of these studies look at. That's true. But another thing that we also keep in mind is that If one looks at culprit lesions in patients who have sudden cardiac death or an intracoronary thrombus, the culprit lesion does not tend to be the 90% stenotic flow-limiting lesion. It's less than 30%. And almost all of the imaging modalities, at least looking at coronaries at the present time, measure the size of the donut hole, not the size of the donut. Atherosclerosis is caused by LDL-induced inflammation of arteries, or is it? Do you believe it's a little more complicated than that? I think it's more complicated than that. We certainly have a cholesterol-centric view of atherogenesis, and it is clearly true that hyperlipidemia itself can be pro-inflammatory, but there also can be extrinsic factors which impact on atherogenesis or causing atherosclerosis independent of or in addition to 
cholesterol. And a perfect example is rheumatologic diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, erythematosus. These are populations that have clear ongoing chronic inflammation and even in the absence of traditional risk factors or traditional hyperlipidemia, there's a significant increase in risk of cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis development independent of someone's cholesterol level. So I, I don't think we can only focus on cholesterol. That being said, it is a primary target other than aspirin, if you will, and statins if you believe they have an anti-inflammatory effect. We don't really have anti-inflammatory targeted therapies yet for treatment of atherosclerosis and, and coronary artery disease. On that note, Dr. Stanley Hazen, thank you very much for coming on the show. We've been talking about dysfunctional HDL. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening. <laughs>